Hello, today we're speaking with Andrew Dana Hudson, a sustainability researcher and speculative fiction writer of a number of different books, including the soon to come out Our Shared Storm, A Novel of Five Climate Features. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. You know, Andrew, I came across your work while researching solar punk. How would you define solar punk? Solar punk, I usually call a, a speculative movement. You know, it's a new burgeoning subgenre of speculative fiction, science fiction, and climate fiction. Uh, that thinks about sustainability and how we deal with climate change and kind of utopian ideas of what a sustainable or just society might look like. But it's also, I think, for a lot of people is you know, a source of praxis, a way that they are thinking about, their, um, about how they relate to this kind of civilizational bottleneck that we find ourselves in. So, it, you know, it means a lot of different things to a lot of people, uh, which is one of the things that makes it so exciting because it, it's one of these, those keywords that once you hear it, I think for lots of people, it just sinks in and you're like, oh, there's something there. There was something that I kind of always knew or wanted to be there. And now I need to, to figure out what it is and what it means for me. And I think a lot of people are familiar with this concept of cyberpunk. Um, right. When were you first kind of drawn into solarpunk? Because it's, it's a more recent phenomenon, I guess. Yeah, I, I first heard about it in 2015. I read a, an, an essay called Notes Towards a Solarpunk Manifesto by Adam Flynn. And I was living in the Bay Area at the time and, and realized that I knew this guy. Uh, he was roommates with a really good friend of mine. So, you know, Adam and I started talking because it really just like clicked for me. Like I think the concept does for a lot of people. And I wrote a thing uh, about solar punk. Uh, a long read essay on the politics that I saw in what was kind of coming up. And then I started originally collaborating with Adam and then kind of breaking out on my own, writing my own stories. And, and that's kind of been how I got into this particular stage of my career where I'm uh, writing and publishing novels and uh, studying sustainability and, and all that. Yeah. And I guess when I think about, so I went back and I read through, you know, those original articles. The Wikipedia page is, is pretty limited relative to some of these other kind of something punk, right? You know, so like people I think are familiar with steampunk and cyberpunk, etc. But I've actually heard it more and more. And I was actually talking to a venture capitalist recently, and, and she just mentioned kind of Alphan. Oh, I, I own solarpunk.com randomly. I was like, oh, okay. Huh. That's, that's, that's a kind of fascinating thing. And so that kind of caused me to kind of do a deep dive. And so I became a little bit involved in the kind of solarpunk community on Reddit and realized that it was like this this is this tension between people kind of posting pictures of buildings in Singapore versus people who are thinking more in terms of political impact. I guess how do you think about that kind of divide between solarpunk as pure aesthetic versus solarpunk as poly, like a political kind of movement? Yeah, so I my core way of of trying to understand and and nudge people to understand solarpunk is that there, there's lots of kind of ecotopian thinking out there. And what defines solar punk is that it needs to have kind of a countercultural bent, right? It needs to be punk, which means it needs to be the sort of coming out of the lives of people who are in some way rejecting the kind of mainstream choices and like uh, approaches to life, right? That doesn't mean that they need to be punk the way the punks were in the 70s or the way the cyberpunks were, right? But it, it means that they are not the majoritarian position, right? 
And so, you know, you can have the, those like green buildings in Singapore. Those are very much the, the majoritarian position in Singapore, right? You put graffiti on them. Now you're kind of, now it's interesting, right? Because it, it implies that there's a group of people that are a little bit bucking the, the system, right? And so I think, you know, I would encourage people when they encounter these aesthetics to sort of think about what it means for the different kind of groups that might live in there and, in, you know, in the world that produces these buildings or these images and ask who who's doing the weird stuff, right? Who is, who, you know, who are the 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 equivalent of the cyberpunk hackers and like street samurai and these people who are sort of operating on the edge of illegality. And we're not the ones who are kind of like packing up their cyber briefcase and taking the cyber train to their job at like Wayland Yutani industries or whatever, right? Like whatever the, the cyberpunk megacorp is, there was a lot of people working at those and the, so the cyberpunks were the ones who weren't right and so the solar punks are kind of are similarly going to be people doing something that is uses the the technological momentum of the sustainability the energy transition the all the the innovation coming out of the climate crisis and does something different with it right the famous gibson quote is the street finds its own uses for things right so in the context of cyberpunk that was about computers and networking and telecommunications and in the context of solarpunk that's about solar panels and permaculture and carbon drawdown and and renewable energy and all all sorts of things that we can imagine a finding different uses when they become ubiquitous right like when when you have solar panels so cheap that they are just littering the ground that like anyone can pick them up. What are people going to do of them that we haven't thought of yet? So that's kind of the big distinction that I I try to to make. Yeah, and I guess you know when I think through like a punk appreciation for activism and change, right? Nearly by definition, if you I I am a punk trying to achieve a certain kind of change as of right now. If I succeed in all my aims it becomes a majoritarian position to a certain extent. And so then there needs to be another reaction. And so it's like this kind of breathing, living kind of organism, but in society where you have, uh, in essence, people trying to move the Overton window across like different kind of areas of, of being, right? So whether it's technological uses, how we organize ourselves into kind of social groupings and so on. And so I guess it was like, what, what I think it's interesting to me about the way you kind of describe punk is that like there's no end in sight, right? It's like not an end point that people are kind of striving for. If you quote unquote achieve solar punk as like it becomes a majoritarian, and now something else would be emergent as a reaction to that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've really found interesting about seeing solar punk evolve over the last seven years is that a lot of the stories that get written are in some ways not purely concerned with like how much carbon is in the atmosphere and where are we getting our energy, right? Like a lot of it, that kind of consideration is in the background, but the thing that people, the like heroes of the story are trying to deal with is like the trickier questions of biological health, right? Of, of ecosystem health, of biodiversity, and trying to deal with the, the various ways that we are 
toxifying our planet with pesticides and herbicides and and chemical runoff that are are not just carbon in the atmosphere and radiative forcing, right? So in a way, I think that for me implies that, you know, we we have to some extent reached a, a little bit of a majoritarian position on where, you know, where we are going to build a lot of solar panels and we are hopefully going to cut our emissions. And we might even have a, you know, majoritarian backing to clean the carbon that we've dumped out of the atmosphere, right? But the all these questions of like, oh, we really need to stop killing our our planet in all these other ways, all these other sort of planetary boundaries and ecosystem health questions, right? Like those are, I think, very much a, you know, you end up a punk when you start taking those really seriously. So, you know, I think it's, yeah, exactly what you said. We're, we're going to get to kind of one phase of we're going to get through one phase of of these transitions but there'll be sort of another and there'll be people on on the bleeding edge of each of these moments and maybe they don't stay punks throughout it right like i mean you become a punk and you you live very radically for a while and then eventually you get old and and it's not really sustainable to do that for one's entire life right but we we're interested in in stories about these because they kind of capture the the moments that are kind of most exciting and and that offer the most visual or or aesthetic or or just kind of narrative possibility for the rest of us right and if it doesn't in some way capture that imagination right if there isn't when somebody writes it like yourself or you see those some of those images that that people have designed like it has to capture something and whether it's solar punk or something else it, like there has to be some hook that feeds into some sort of emotion, a sense of loss, a sense of hope, or whatever it may be. I was reading your article or your blog post a few years ago called "The Political on the Political Dimensions of Solar Punk," and I think we'll, we'll include it in the show notes. I think it's this absolutely kind of fascinating article that kind of goes into some things we've already talked about. But one of the elements you kind of really dig into is like the state of capitalism, even four or five years ago and how it's kind of evolving and how people are kind of reacting to different versions of that with these other kind of crises that are like emerging all at once. And so you, you have this line where I suspect that global capitalism is entering a contradictory period of both fierce domination and slow failure. And those 2015, 2016, I believe. Would you still agree with that? How have your kind of views kind of shifted on that over the last five years? Oh, yeah. I look back on on what I wrote then and the 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 phrase like the idea that um was embedded in there that where there's sort of neoliberalism was like strangling all possibility of change boy like i mean that that does not particularly feel like it bore out right because history did not like keep withering history just like exploded uh, sort of we had you know trump you had brexit you had all the craziness of of those years you have covid all these things. So I think my my sense that in 2015 that Hillary Clinton was going to become president and there's just going to be the molasses poured over the levers of change. And if you wanted to do anything big with the world, you would need to to sort of do it from the margins. You know, I'm not entirely sure that that worked out, right? But 
you know, I mean, maybe we're back in that moment. I think I think COVID has kind of squashed a lot of sense of possibilities for a lot of people. And I mean, it was definitely like I would I would write. I'd probably write the essay very differently for for you know a COVID moment, but nonetheless, I I don't I think what you the what you quoted is probably still more or less right. I mean, we are in a phase in which capitalism seems to be not exactly collapsing, but sort of bursting at, at the gills, and it you know there's there's more struggle and and friction between labor and and capital than ever and it, it that is really exciting in some ways it's really scary in others and even i think in the last few years one of the ways i can think of like the capital uh, sort of the narrative of capitalism itself was that you know it emerged in red and tooth and claw in like the 18 late 1800s in the kind of developed world uh, and then basically spread around the world in a kind of post-World War II kind of ethos uh, and, and kind of took over more and more uh, elements of different societies. And obviously, we had a very fragmented and, and kind of wild 20th century as that kind of process through. But as we were basically now, pretty much the majority of countries have some sort of capitalist kind of system in terms of like the exchange of goods and, and the means of production and so on. And so to me, the capitalism as like a project, like the end point has somewhat been reached, right? There are, you know, as, as many people kind of built starting companies in sub-Saharan Africa as there ever have been, right? Like you, you have this kind of sense of uh, the penetration of the global south is maybe not 100% complete, but has has done the kind of gotten to a certain logical end. Totally. So now I think there's this kind of reaction to like, okay, what is next? And by next, again, it can also be through the prism of privatized means of production and so on. But one of the lines, again, that kind of stood out of that article is this idea of one way solarpunk can challenge that's capitalist status quo is nurturing these alternative economic arrangements at a community or network level. And I think about this emergent, uh, often full of nonsense like Web3, but sometimes there's like a gem of in like an interesting idea in these kind of digital co-ops. How do you think about that as a potential new route, as a, a challenge, but also a, con- a complement, I guess, to capitalism? Yeah, well, I I don't want to set my foot into you know Web three culture wars. Nonetheless, I think that Solarpunk has a lot of ideas about the possibility of, of decentralized projects that are are nonetheless grounded in the material world, right? That care about material reality, as opposed to to some extent, I think a lot of the Web three stuff doesn't really isn't interested in material reality, right? It, it's kind of the the far end of uh, where we've gotten with with the cyberpunk uh, abstraction of human life, right? You shove your human life into into things like cyberspace, the metaverse, right? And like, I mean, we're not going to be uploading our brains into anything, but there's there's that sort of dream that I think some people still have, and you know, the the like having a like pixelated profile picture that nonetheless is is this. Uh, highly networked ob- like hyper object is like that's super cyberpunk right but using those technologies that sort of existing infrastructure to do something that affects watersheds or you know a- affects cares about like 
the land, the like the climate, health, food and water, right? Like pollen, like using, if you can find a way to use these technologies to like think about pollinator populations and revitalizing those, like now you're talking solar pump, right? Uh, because it's, I think it, there's this like reverse of that trend toward abstraction embedded in the technological, I you know, speculations that that come out of solar punk. So, the, probably the most solar punk real life project I've ever heard of was a few years ago. I was at a, a conference in Berlin and talked to an Iraqi guy who uh, told me about how they had used like an Arduino Geiger counter and hooked it up to Google Maps and gone all throughout their their community and mapped out which streets were uh, still irradiated by the depleted uranium shells the ally the the uh, american invasion had used right which was something that the government both the iraqi and the, the american government was like refusing to acknowledge that they irradiated big big parts of that country and people were going to get cancer and like the all the technology they were using like man that is that that was like very digital stuff, right? They they got there with their savvy with code and uh, electronics, but it was about like the invisible material dangers of the like actual place that they lived in. And of course, like, and it was very rebellious, right? Because they got shut down because none of the like business people wanted, you know, people to think that like their shops were. <laughs> dangerous to go to, right? Never mind that they sent their employees there every day. So, you know, I think I think the the more you can look at these new kind of axes of decentralization and figure out how to ground them, right? And sometimes into the literal ground and caring about things like soil, health and that sort of thing. Like that's that's where I get excited. Yeah, there's um it kind of reminds me of I don't know if you're familiar with Klimadao, K L I M A. DAO. So this is like a large, well, it still exists, but basically an attempt to create a token, uh, create value, and link it to carbon sequestered in the natural world, right? Through different types of farming practices, forestry, etc. It was worth about a billion dollars in July. It's lost 96% of value since then. And the underlying reason for that is that it could not figure out its actual connection to the supply of the real world, right? It basically had solved the demand problem. There's some disaggregated group of people who want to money their money to go towards uh, and their influence as a DAO to go towards climate positive product projects. But then the actual like hard on the ground work needed to try to find can we get some trees planted here? Can we protect the forest there? Can we change some farming practices there? It just was was not doesn't have the same speed as throwing together like a debt a community within Discord or whatever it may be. And I think it's this kind of fascinating tension where people who are very, very used to moving incredibly quickly within digital spaces are coming up against atoms and trying to figure out how to solve problems there. But I do, I really love this kind of example of the Geiger counter because I think one of the like amazing skill sets of people I've been very impressed with in the last couple of years are people who are coming from some sort of digital first or software background and are, have become frustrated by just living in a pure software world and want to actually start building things. And people are uh, like tinkering around with different things, trying to invent hardware that does various things. And a lot of that's purely in a kind of VC-backed startup space, but some are even on their side projects are quite kind of solar punk in nature. I tend to think that almost everything we need to solve our sort of societal, collective, planetary problems has already been invented. The technology is, is there. It's just a matter of rearranging our politics to use it. 
and in the right way. And and so, yeah, I'm I'm like not surprised. I've I've heard lots of people for whom like the like digital feeling like your life is only digital and and is not tied at all to in a meaningful way to an actual like objects and place and food and like all those things are digitally mediated for you too in some ways right like that can be very dissatisfying and and not to not that the, the solution entirely is to just like log off and go live in the woods right i mean i think these are problems that really we need to solve in in an urban way not in a like back to the land way right so but you know the it's really promising to hear and and think that there are people willing to slow down and try and solve these problems as opposed to just you know just trying to move fast and break things i mean i think you know i i i threw in in that essay that you you mentioned the political dimensions essay I have kind of a tagline that then has been taken up by a lot of people, which is move quietly and plant things, right? And I think a sense of like trying to figure out what it looks like when, from a narrative perspective and from an aesthetic perspective, when people are engaged in in that kind of behavior, right? Where the exciting stuff is happening very carefully through cultivation, through cooperation and negotiation, as opposed to through pure disruption, I think, is, is part of what people come to solar punk try, looking to, to try and like guide them towards figuring out. Yeah. And, and you mentioned this kind of urban element. And, you know, when I think about solar punk, it, just again, on the pure aesthetic level, it seems to be this kind of uniting of like the pastoral with the urban, right? So it's like, we're seeing greenery. I've mentioned many times in the podcast, I come from kind of very rural farming background in Ireland, but love big, uh, blunt cities and and like love kind of moving between those spaces. And I guess the, if I look at a lot of the developed world, but the United States in particular, there is this kind of urban, non-urban battle. And even within urban areas, monikers like Yimby and NIMBY, these kind of tensions that are arising over like how to basically govern the built environment in a way that both gives people places to live and like those basic human needs are met, but then also reaches for something higher, right? Either through mitigating climate change actually even solving climate change in, in some small manner, or even just bringing in these kind of new aesthetic kind of values. Like, how do you think about that kind of the urbanism and how important that is to this as a, as a kind of general movement? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote that essay in 2015 was to kind of offer some guidance to what at the time was like, felt like a bunch of kids exploring this kind of genre possibility on Tumblr, right? And now there's been a billion think pieces written about it. There's been some like sci- major science fiction writers have kind of taken it up, but has at least taken a hint from from this discussion. Um, and you have communities who are you know that are very vibrant on Reddit and Discord and and all these other places. But you know one of the yeah one of the things that I tried to offer as advice was don't run out and try to build a a commune in, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like if, if you if you personally want to do that, I'm like, go for it, right? But that that can't be what every solar punk story is about, right? Because we we live in an urban world. The majority of human beings live in urban environments. And those places aren't going away, right? Like I I think occasionally I'll see sort of solar punk inspired stuff where where they're like live in this utopian village and then they're going and like 
scavenging from the ruins of Detroit or the or the ruins of Chicago or whatever. And it's like if we have you know multi million person metropolises that are are left in ruins, like it doesn't matter how nice your village is, right? Like the, you, we've something truly catastrophic we failed. has gone <laughs> yes. down, right? And it's that's not where I think we should sort of put our imaginative efforts, right? Like we should put our imaginative efforts towards figuring out how we avoid the decimation of of humanity and and the loss of of so much of of we've built together and you know how do we retrofit it to actually work for humans for other species for the environment cuz you know the the truth is like these places are our urban spaces are amazing but we did build them wrong right like we built them around fossil infrastructure we built them in a variety of other unsustainable ways. We kind of have to go through and rebuild everything that we spent the like late 19th through the sort of late 20th century building. And that is like, in some ways, a little bit of a demoralizing prospect, but it also is, is very exciting if you're, you're willing to kind of embrace the possibilities, both sort of aesthetic and narrative of, of that retrofitting project, right? But yeah, I think I think a lot of people are like, we can just have these beautiful, like eco biomimicry houses, and we don't have to think about really where in the actual world we are, or, you know, we like, we're gonna have these beautiful green skyscrapers, never mind, like all the skyscrapers that already exist, right? So I, I the, the more we can situate this sort of branch of speculative thinking in in the retrofit project, right? And and not just like abandoning or expecting to abandon or de facto abandoning the the huge amount of stuff we built. It, the be- the better off we'll be because you know people people live there already and like displacing them that's terrible. Them trying to uh, th- them leaving this place like just to be overgrown like that I don't think that's a way forward. So it, it's it's really tough and but. Hopefully the that essay can and just kind of general I think the, the the urbanist draw that a lot of people in solarpunk do do also feel along with that pastoralism can uh, start to to start to get us to a more like productive place about yeah yeah uh, you actually just as you're talking there you named the thesis of, of the startup I'm working on now and I don't, I'm not ready to kind of announce it but basically the thesis is we're going to rebuild our refurbish every part of the built environment in 50 years. And that's out of necessity. But the kind of positive piece out of that um, is that what we'll build is just way better than what we have now. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day, I was coming on the podcast uh, soon, and he's building windows that will completely black out the, the, the sun at just a flick of a switch. You, you talk about people who are you know, working on things like electrification of the home, you know, the amount of kind of you know, health issues from people just inhaling you know, fossil fuel Effluence and so on, day to day, is just this, you know billions of people are affected this, by this kind of every year. And I think we've done collectively the we who care about these things and are working on similar things today. We collectively just done a very bad job of describing that like more positive future in a way that actually gets people involved. I think there's like these two versions of the future. It's like now plus more solar panels on the roof, or you have Musk who describes. You know, and not a fully dystopian, but you know, a world where cyberpunk, cyber trucks, sorry, are needed, is more dystopic than utopic. I think in terms of like potential future, and so yeah, and, and then just one other thought on the, on the kind of urban elements. 
I think if I think about cities like Barcelona and Paris and cities not without their issue, but these are very, very dense cities. And I don't think they have quite the vision, in, at least in North American minds, of something that's completely cyberpunk, like there's no movement, there's nothing green at all. And it's like, well, these cities are more dense than pretty much every city in the United States outside of maybe a part of Manhattan. And so you can live in very dense community-built like society uh, in a way that is, uh, I think is also aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, definitely. I think more retrofits are needed on the, the suburbs and the exurbs than on, on the, the actual like super dense uh, urban, urban life. Right. Because, you know, you can, there, there's, there's sort of like a land use trade-off, right. Where when you stack uh, tens of thousands of people in, you know, one square kilometer, you can kind of buy, buy off like land elsewhere on the planet to provide the ecosystem services they need. And I, you know, the, I think we can, we can think about it that way, but yeah, I, I think what, what you said earlier was really right. Like there's just a lot of new stuff that needs to be built, but it's better stuff, right? Like solar is just cheaper than fossil fuels, right? Like we're entangled in the fossil fuels. We're caught in the net. But once we're free, man, like we're going faster than we ever were, right? We're going to have access to more energy than human beings have ever had by like probably an order of magnitude. And we're, it's going to be cheaper and people are not going to die of asthma nearly as much. There are all these ways that just doing the transition, like hopefully we make it a just transition and we, we use it as an opportunity to build the social structures that are are better too, but there, there are like, there is just sort of straight improvements we can make, but you're right that, that it's hard to sell people on these. Carl Schrader is a Canadian science fiction writer and, and he articulated something that I really like a, a few years ago, which is you know, people would rather live in a dystopia they understand than a utopia they don't understand. And, you know, I, I get it, man. I mean, like, like this sort of, current societal situation that we find ourselves in is like pretty not good but like i get up i like face the day like i get through i pay my rent right like i'm not like totally out of it yet and and the prospect of a radical upheaval in society and like i would i would i find meaning in the same things i find meaning in now like would there be a place for me the way there is a place for me now i mean these are all open questions that people ask it's kind of a, i call it the devil you know problem so I, that is one of the the places where i think we need solar punk and and a whole lot of other kinds of of future visioning to uh, help people fill in the gap right through stories through visuals through uh just kind of general propaganda right to, to say that like no like they're this is how you'll fill the day and this is you know the kinds of things that you might do instead and uh, of going to work for eight hours a day and commuting for another two, right? This is what life on a train would be like, like all kinds of things that th- these are the, the ha- rhythms and habits. Like you tell people that it, it takes them half an hour to like supercharge their electric vehicle. They're like half an hour. Like, what am I going to do at the gas station for half an hour? Right. But if you are, say that, like, well, you can just kind of build it into your road trip. You can stop. You can plug in. You go in. You, like, hang out for a little while, relax, like, start to articulate those 
sort of emergent behaviors that come and that people will embrace, I think that stops being an issue, right? Right. And I think one of the things you're touching on is this ability to tell stories, right? And writers like yourself and other artists who are kind of working on this kind of speculative ideas that are more positive or positive with some optimism type of realistic kind of views of the world. And then you have, so that, that, that's, that's occurring. But from my perspective, it's a little bit siloed relative to the other silo, which are people kind of from the community I'm coming out of, which is like tech people trying to build things, right? Uh, maybe moving fast and breaking things, but maybe thinking on a little bit more of a kind of timeline, but very interested in, you know, how do we get a lot of solar built? How do we get, you know, move from gas powered to EVs? How do we get to zero carbon buildings and the like? And I think that there's a real hunger, I think, for some cross-pollination of ideas from those two groups. I run this um, monthly meetup for mostly climate tech folk in New York. And in the last one, we happen to have somebody who also does some climate art. And the amount of enthusiasm was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, you have these tech founders who are just like so excited to like talk to this woman who like does, does these lovely watercolors of, of you know, climate charts and so on. How... I guess, what would you like to see from more of the, like the tech community in terms of engaging with these ideas? Like what, what could, if, if I can speak for us on, the, on that side, like what could, could we do more of? Uh, yeah, it, it's tricky, right? Because, you know, there, I think a lot of people do go into something like startup life and, and tech wanting to think big and change the world. I mean, it's like the Silicon Valley and like sitcom uh, cliche now, but I think there are, there are a lot of good intentions and, but the, they're just these like deep grooves worn in the, worn in the path, right. That route you into doing it in a, a particular way that involves making money for people who are mostly richer than you. Right. And you have to sort of interface with all these other groups that are also trying to make money. And it's, it's just like not a very countercultural place to be in, no matter what your original intentions were. So yeah, I think, I think that's a tricky spot. And, and, you know, the incentives for, you know, doing this in a way that is a business, even if you, you have these kind of other, that turns a profit, even if you have these other notions, that definitely complicates the kind of pure imagination that I think a lot of people who just approach this as an aesthetic project are, are able to engage with. That said, I, I think that there's a certain amount of, I think there is room to sort of like rebel against the, the, the grooves that you're shunted into, right? And one of the ways is to try to, to think about the role of a particular firm, not entirely in terms of, like what market percent will it achieve, right? Like how can I be the next bajillion dollar company that takes over the world and outcompetes, you know, ever all the other solutions, right? And instead just be like, how far can I push the possibility space, right? Like what can I open up that and allow people both in the mainstream, the majoritarian and the, the marginal sustainability project to to see that like oh there's a there there there's like a we can do something that is uh, fresh and interesting and as opposed to just trying to to you know maybe push out a little bit but then so much of the work of businesses the consolidation is the the sort of strangling out of the competitors 
But if you just, you know, were, were able to focus, even as you go through the consolidation on like how, how far out can you push the, uh, can you push those possibility sort of fogs of war, right? I think you could get to some really interesting places. And, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, I think every organization at this point needs to start thinking deeply about the ways in which it is going to be ensconced in the material reality of the transition, right? And that means that, you know, you, you can't just, if, if you're really serious about this, you shouldn't just be like, we have an office space that we rent in from another company and like they handle the landscaping and like, you know, they handle like, turning off the the lights at night like these are all things that i think we we have outsourced tons of of stuff to to others but that that are you know determine the majority of things about the the places that we sort of ensconce ourselves as as companies or as as individuals and we we just need to be pushing back against that like most companies are not going to be able to design a like google campus or like whatever right where they get to build these things from the ground up but i think trying to go and like figure out and develop relationships with like building management and and being able to like use your your voice as someone that cares about the energy the climate transition to in help them make better choices right like that it's hard work and and it like requires us to sort of put ourselves out there. But I think it would be really interesting and it would probably also just like inspire a lot of gear turning uh, from the kind of people that you're talking about. Right. Just, I mean, like just like one example, you know, if you're, if your building is going to get its heating redone, right. And they install gas now, like there's like a 20 year lifespan built into that. Right. And, but we just can't keep running the gas pumps for another 20 years we just have to stop so it's the more people can start to kind of look out of their own kind of little lane and and see that they are part of this web and that they need to be tugging on on the web and advocating for electrification for better land use all these things even when they're just like they feel like they exist on the internet right i think you know that would be a really generative way to approach it yeah, you definitely cannot, or you should not outsource your your, your actual ethical uh, due, right? I've just got a basic framework for like a little article I wrote about founder ethics, and it's basically just classic two by two, beloved by MBAs around the world and, and startup founders, etc. And it's basically you can work on an ethical or unethical, like a problem where solving it is ethical or unethical, right? And you know, one is climate. One extreme is climate. The other is uh, how do I get more kids to uh, you know, smoke, right? And so those are. So if you're working on something very ethical, amazing. And then you can do it in an ethical or unethical way. It's like the people who are trying to get a lot of kids to smoke, maybe they have an amazing like company culture and they are very like <laughs> respective of the local environment, all that kind of thing, but still terrible what they're doing, right? Versus what you really want is to align both. So you're working on a big problem that has a big ethical component and you're doing it to maximize your own ethical man- manner of doing so. And I honestly think that more and more people are starting to think like this and Often it's, may- it's mainly just like a lack of thought rather than anything more uh, sinister. But even that, 
the amount of people I talked to was like, oh yeah, we're working on something big and profound. And like, you're not, right? So, and you may be doing it pretty ethically, but like, you're not really working on anything like super big. And it doesn't have to be climate, right? There's a lot, we have a lot of problems to solve. So the, 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 there's a lot of um, fertile ground for people to kind of approach. But I guess one of the things that I will be doing uh, at, at these kind of groups, and especially when your book comes out uh, in early April, is reading your book and, and kind of spreading your book around as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'd love to just in the last couple of minutes here, just chat a little bit about what kind of led up to writing this novel and yeah, any thoughts you have on it. Yeah. So this novel was, was actually my master's thesis and uh, I, that I wrote as I was studying sustainability at Arizona State, which is sort of an incredible place to be doing this kind of work because they, they're willing to support a lot of really interesting future thinking projects and people like me. But, you know, I, I, it came out of starting to you know, learn more about the, the world of climate modeling and, and encountering, these, encountering these scenarios, the, the shared socioeconomic pathways that are, are, are now starting to show up in the IPCC's uh, assessment reports. And reading through them being like, oh, these are science fiction stories, right? These are climate fiction stories. And so I, I decided to try to write a set of stories that kind of together would be more or less a novel that illustrated each of these scenarios that were, you know, informing the science, right? And that we're trying to take a deeper look at not just how much emissions are we going to put out, but like how are these, how is economic growth and population growth and all these, all these things in, entangled? And can we create sort of a set of assumptions and narratives that, that help us understand the different ways we might go? And I, eventually I kind of winnowed at the idea and figured out that I, uh, what I actually wanted to do was kind of tell one story five different ways, right? I wanted to, to uh, have it be a little bit of like, alternate futures. So, so it's not just, so it had an, an experimental quality to it where I'm eliminating as many variables as possible. And each story is set in the same place and, and shares some characters, but they're all living different lives because we, the people that have built this future, uh, have made different choices, right? Collectively about, about how we're going to handle this. And I said it at, at the COP, at the UN climate change negotiations. I said at COP 60, though in, in some ways it feels like it, also, it could also be, you know, 10 years from now just because since I started working on the book, it feels like so much of this has accelerated. So, you know, it, I think pretty entertaining, even though it is a very wonky book that tries to think about the, the cultures of our climate politics. And to some extent, that's a space you can imagine continuing to be dominated by the, the kind of diplomatic class but you can also imagine the ways in which it's a place where the startups and and companies and private uh, equity ends up playing a, a bigger role. I mean, you you know, if you go to the COP, right, they have this huge floor, and and half of it is is countries showing off what they're they're doing as nations. But uh, there's also tons of booths and and displays from companies that are, are sort of involved in this. So, you know, there's kind of a middle of the road scenario where we've got similar problems as to now, we've made some progress, but we haven't sort of really like gotten a ton of momentum. There's a, a scenario 
in which we just sort of burn all the fossil fuels. We use that to power like high economic growth, particularly in the developing world. And we just sort of try to adapt our way through. There's a scenario in which like inequality is really strong and thinking about the the sort of aesthetics of quality uh, was a really fun task of, of writing that particular section. There's a section in which like, man, we just totally fail. We have total international breakdown and like we just turn to fighting amongst ourselves. There's just constant conflict and, and a violence. Only a 20% chance. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that is the baseline scenario, right? So that's the one that we get to if we don't swerve at all. And then there's uh, the sustainability scenario, which is, uh, at, you know, in the, in the SSPs, that's SSP1, but I, I use it as the happy ending my book. So, you know, I, I think it can be useful for anyone who's trying to just think about all the, the different angles that one can approach the climate question from, both from a utopian and a, and a dystopian perspective. And, and I think it's, you know, anyone who's been to the cop, I think, should read it because they'll, they'll probably like get a kick out of it. So, yeah, it comes out in, in April. I'm, it, it's been sort of a multi-year project for me and so very excited to have it come out and be in the world and hopefully you know hear hear from people uh that it was it was useful it's there's a little bit of the the kind of speculative didacticism in there where you're you try to like articulate what is the path to the or, or like what is the the more sustainable future made of but for the most part i think i think it avoids that and which we, you know, we've got we've got other good examples of people trying to to show. You know, Kim Stanley Robinson is he's got it, the Ministry for the Future, which is very much a, like you know laying it out to people like what the the transition would look like. And um, yeah, we we actually had Delton Chen, whose kind of idea of like a global carbon currency was the underlying um, concept for yeah. Ministry of the Future. We we had him on the podcast about eight months ago, and uh, yeah, and and I think that like. Kim Stanley Robinson's kind of general approach, including his one twenty one forty New York or New York twenty one forty. Yeah, these are, I think, more ideas that people are putting out there. I think it does expand like the view of what's possible in a way that, like, goes to the people who are making those decisions at the cop at the cop, you know, the different cop meetings and so on. Yeah, well, I I certainly you know look forward to to hearing what people what people think of the book. And and I think it's pretty fun, you know. I mean, it's it's. I think there's jokes, you know. There's sort of like action-packed moments, right? It's not entirely just, and actually, not that much like sitting in rooms talking about the climate. Even though sitting in rooms talking about the climate is probably a majority of the work that we need to do to actually. Well, the majority of the work is just like hammering solar panels onto roofs, right? Right. But we we do have to do just a lot of talking to get there, and. So it's always good to like be in conversations like this one where where we are doing a small piece of that that conversation. Well, I've loved the conversation, Andrew. This has been absolutely brilliant. And we'll we'll include links out to pre-sales for the book and everything. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.